This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to the Game of Two Halves, a sports podcast by The Straits Times. I'm Shamir Osman and I'm joined in the studio today by my colleague Rohit Brishnath. We are going to chat about youth and belief. Various sports really. Badminton with Lo Kian Yu, football with Iksan Fandi and tennis and Andy Murray. Let's get right to it. Rohit, Lo Kian Yu beat Chinese superstar Lin Tan in the Thai Masters. How big is that win for that boy? Yeah, I think it's I think these sort of wins are incredibly important, you know. You need little moments in your life as an athlete, you know, which are springboards to a slightly higher level in belief. I'm talking about belief because that's the most important thing for a young athlete and he's I think only 21 years oh. old, right? So, okay, Lindan is not the player that he was. That's fine. I mean, we we have to be honest about that, but that doesn't matter because what happens often is I think when players, young players like can you are playing him, then you play the reputation instead of playing the man. But he did the right thing. He played the man. He played the man. You know, he played. He played the game. You know, he he managed to put Lindan's reputation, which can be fearsome. It's like playing Federer. You I know, we see this in in local athletes all the time. They yeah. go to international tournaments and then they just freeze. Yeah, but it happens. You know, it's all at the Australian Open. You know, I, I always laugh because you know there's a guy uh, by courtside who reads out the players' biodatas. You know, before they play. And by the time he's read out Federer's biodata, it's ridiculous. The other guy is psyched. You know, he's already one love <laughs> down before they've even started exactly. the match. But that's a bit like Lindan, you know. So, I mean, you know, you're saying, my God, I played this guy. He's Olympic champion, world champion, all England champion, all multiple times, Asian Games champion or whatever. So, for this kid to stay focused on the task and do what he needed to do, not get overawed by reputation or the past, I think that's really, really impressive because that means you're playing with a clear mind. And he had to be nervous. So that means he also overcame his nerves. So I like that. I think good signs. I think what you want to see in a young player is good signs. And I think this is really good. Oh, he showed them great signs. He, he's taken home the winner's check of $15,000. But it's surely more valuable to him, as you've said, yeah, than, I than think, the cash. Yeah, of course. You just you need little notches, you know. I played on a big court on a big day and I found my best game. I played against a big guy and I played well. So these are small things you want to tick off, you know, that you did all the right things on a big day. And, you know, so I think he's going to go away. He's going to be a different player. And then, of course, you've got to build on it. Well, now, he's already quit school. He was in Republic Polytechnic. He's quit school. He's come up, gone pro. Now, what is the next step for this boy then? I mean, he says his dream is to win Olympic gold like Joseph Schooling. Now, our Minister for Community, Culture and Youth, Ms. Grace Fu, has come out to congratulate him. Sport Singapore has come out to congratulate him. We'll definitely need to see more funding for him. Yeah, I, I think so. I don't know what his level of funding is at the moment. But I think for all athletes like this who are young and they are learning, I think what they need is travel. Gopijan, you know, the, the Indian coach, I think he's uh, coaching PV Sindhu now. I think one of the things he told me a couple of months ago was that a lot of the Indian players traveled. In the old days, they went to maybe only one or two tournaments a year. And then you're playing the big guys and then, you know, you get overwhelmed. But if you keep traveling all the time to lots of tournaments, then you realize you get used to playing the big guys. You get used to big occasions, get used to big courts. And suddenly those guys are not gods. They're humans. And you see that, you know, they have weaknesses. They are beatable. You might have a good day against them. You need that experience. And for that experience, you have to travel. His ranking is a bit low at the moment, so he has to keep working on those rankings, going to a certain level of tournaments, doing well, then going to the next level. But it requires a lot of play. You need a lot of matches under your belt. And what sort of... He must commit to the cause now. As in, he says, okay, my dream is Olympic gold. I've now beaten one of the biggest players in recent history. Not currently, maybe. But he must knuckle down, do what Joe Schooling did, right? Yeah, I think the first thing is, I really like to hear this from Singapore athletes. I like the fact that he's willing to say that I want to win Olympic gold. That means he's thinking really big, which is really cool because... 
Even if you don't win it, that really doesn't matter. But you need to have big dreams. I like guys with big dreams who think big. And then, of course, if you want to have big dreams, then you have to have a big work ethic. I mean, you you have to outwork the other guys. You know, it's not at that level. Then it, it's not a question of talent. It's a question of how much you're going to work, how much are you going to practice, how often are you going to you know wake up in the morning. It's like you know Michael Phelps, you know, swimming every day for five days. You know, he just psyched out people. They couldn't believe him. You know that that he's doing fifty two. Days more training per year because he's training on Sundays and they weren't. But you know, so the, it's the, amazing. What I really do like is what you just brought up earlier that a Singapore athlete has come out with, without fear of people laughing at him at his dream or fear of repercussions of failing later on to come out and say yes. I'm going to do this. Joe Schooling, for me, was one of the first to actually dared to have that dream and dared to tell the public that, yes, this is what I want to achieve. I think that kind of gutsiness, we, we seem to be lacking a little bit of it, actually. I think that basically schooling by winning that goal has opened some psychological doors. And that's really important. So it's very difficult if nobody in your country has ever won gold to mm-hmm. say, I'm going to win gold. So for Joe to say it, I think that was fantastic. You know, I, I think, you know, it was really difficult for him. The first guy is always the most difficult because like the first guy on the moon, nobody's been there before. You don't know if it can be done. you got to take all those first steps yourself. you got to create your own path. you got to be, you know, the trailblazer, the scout. Yeah, the first one through the wall. Yeah, gets yeah. So, so that's amazing. So I think in, in a way, even though they're different sports, there is no question that this young man has been helped by schooling because, you know, we go through so many stages in life. You know, for they say, you know, Asian athletes are too small, mm. you know, I think we've gone past that. You know, we have tennis players who are Asian. We have, you know, footballers who are Asian. We have swimmers, world-class swimmers who are Asian. So I think we're slowly breaking down barriers. And most of those barriers are psychological. Indeed. Now, in football, we've got a similar situation now. Yep. Iksan Fandi has earned a contract with a second-tier Norwegian side, Ralph Foss. Now, do you think he could play a similar sort of a role in breaking this sort of barrier for local footballers in going to Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all small steps. You know, I, we are a small country we're, we're, with a small population. We are not going to have a surge of athletes doing fantastic things. We don't have the numbers that China has or India has. So they're going to be small steps by a few athletes. So I think this is a small step and I respect it. I respect every small step taken by an athlete which has not been taken before. So I think, you know, we've again, you know, we always have the Asian athletes always, all my life, 32 years of writing. I've heard this all over Asia. You know, they get homesick. You know, they want food, it's the weather, it's all those sort of things. But look, if you want to take on the world, you've got to be tough here. And part of being tough is, I mean, you have to suck it up, man. If it's bad weather, bad luck. If it's, you know, it's different food, bad luck. You can't beat the best in the world if you're worried about food the weather or whatever. Yeah. It's not easy. I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and say it's a difficult thing to go and live in an environment which is very lonely and very different. And sometimes even the language is unfamiliar. Though in no- he's in Norway, right? It's and they, they do speak English, which, is, which helps. But it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, so I admire him for that. So I think that it means the next guy who opens the door is a little easier because that's the door's already open. Though. Yeah, that's why it's, it's, again, I go back to that point. I think it's psychological. Now, if you're enjoying this episode of A Game of Two Half so far, do subscribe to us on Apple's podcast app, on Google Podcasts, or even on Spotify. Go there and tell us what you think of the job we've been doing so far. Now, back to our show. We move on to the second half and we're having a look at tennis this time. Well, not of a young upstart making it there, but of someone who has inspired and now is walking away from the scene. Andy Murray, what do you think of his announcement of his retirement? Yeah, really sad. I I, I really enjoyed Andy Murray. Um, I'm actually off to the Open in a few days, but by that time, I think he's going to be out. And uh, I hope he makes it till Wimbledon. A couple of things about Andy that are interesting. One is that he obviously was not as good as Djokovic, Nadal or Federer. 
But I felt that really didn't matter because sometimes your competition is with yourself, not always with other players. And I think Andy worked really hard to get the best out of himself. Especially you know? in a country like England, right? Yeah. He wasn't fertile at that time. No, I think he had a lot of history weighing on him. And, and where he's different from Federer and Nadal and Djokovic is that none of them have a Grand Slam in their own countries. That's fine. Okay, so the pressure that Andy had was immense, you know. And, you know, he, I think he was the first to win Wimbledon in 77 years. Yes. We'll never understand what that weight of history is like for a player you know everywhere he went he must have been asked about it you know and then he lost the 2012 final to Federer and you know he made a speech which made me cry he cried which is amazing and let's, then, of hear, course, a bit, let's hear a bit of that what, what was it in particular that caught you no I think the fact that he was you know sometimes when it's tough for somebody when they lose They'll just say thank you and they won't speak, you know, because they just want to get it over with. But I think he recognized that, you know, Federer had been great that day. The crowd had been great that day. It was a very emotional day, but he had just fallen short and he addressed it. You know, he said, it's going to be tough, but I'm going to try. He spoke about his box. He said, I'm not going to turn and look at the box because if he did, he would just not be able to speak. So he said the people behind me, my box, you know, who helped him a lot. And his wife, I think, I don't, I don't know if he was married then, you know, she was, she had a hand over her mouth, you know, she was so upset, you know, and crying. It was a very moving moment. And of course, the next year he, he won Wimbledon, which is, uh, I think everybody wanted Andy to win Wimbledon. But and he was a character, you know. He yes, used to thing, more than just the sport on the court, yeah. he was a character of it. That's yeah, why people yeah. remember him, no? I have never, ever seen such a response from women athletes to a male athlete as I've seen on his retirement from WTA players. Because he did so much for them, you know, he fought for the equality, you know, equality in prize money, which, uh, which, which is the right thing to do. And most men players will not do that. They believe that they deserve more, but he said no, right? I, you know, he did work for refugees. He, he, he was the first top male player to, to have a female coach in Emily Moresbo. That which caused I a bit of problems, fantastic. didn't it? Yeah, obviously, because, and then she got criticized. But look, he had had male coaches before who hadn't been criticized like that. And he stood up for her. And um, look, he was brought up by his mother, Judy Murray. So I think, you know, he, he says, I am a feminist. And uh, he has a strong sense of himself and a strong sense of right and wrong. Yeah. I think Andy Murray, for me, was important because I feel, at least, that I don't expect all athletes, but I expect some athletes to recognize that, look, we've got a great platform because there are a lot of people looking at us, that we can say a lot of things which are important. So you would know? you remember him, the tennis player, or Murray, the person? I think a little bit of both. I think the tennis player because he tried so hard to overcome this history. And he wasn't a natural talent like these guys. He was just a really hardworking guy. Very good athlete. Very strong guy. I, I would say in, in, in racket skills, I wouldn't put him up there with the other guys necessarily. Well, right, Federer but, has technique but, through, yeah, through the roof. Yeah, you can't compare with Federer. You know, Nadal had his own particular quality. And, you know, Novak is, I mean, he's like a genius in his own right. But, you know, he found his way. He won three slams, you know, and three slams and three slams. He won the Davis Cup. He won two Olympic singles goals. But there was this other part of him, you know, the, not just the athlete, but the man. And I was really impressed by both. And that makes him stand out in, in basically what people believe is the most competitive time in the history of men's tennis, right? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. There's no question. This is definitely, I mean, I would say... Uh, way back in the 50s, 60s, when the Australians, you know, uh, Ken Rosewall and Rod Laver, and I don't know who remembers them anymore. You know, and John Newcomb, and, you know, yeah, they were, young, Roy, Roy Emerson, they, they were exceptional generation of tennis players. But I would say that this, I would say in the past 30, 40, 50 years is definitely, you know, I mean, you've got one guy with 20, one guy with 17, one guy with 14, one guy with three. So I, I can't do the math that fast, but that's a lot of slams here. <laughs> Andy Murray is on his way out. Yeah, Naomi Osaka is on her way up and up 
Well, we're talking about youth again, right? People are expecting a lot from her after she won the US Open last year. Can we see, is she ready for the big step up or is it like a process how it was for Andy initially? Yeah, I think that's one thing, you know, we all have to learn people outside the game, whether it's the media or spectators is actually something I'm trying to write about today is that even though a player wins a slam like she did at the US Open, they're not necessarily ready. I think you can have two hot weeks and win an Open, right? You can be on fire and fearless during those two weeks. But becoming a great player is a process that requires experience and it requires time. And you can't rush time, right? The calendar is going to turn at its own but, but particular pace. This is a new world now. We want it and we want it now. <laughs> yeah, but you can't do it because there's certainly, you know, how not to panic, how to play big occasions, how to... De- now, you know, when you become famous, now she's huge now, you know, she can't go anywhere unrecognized. She has more journalists following her. There are more questions. There are more people looking at her. So the whole the expectation on her has just grown. So she's never played she was an underdog now you know she's she's a star it's different so your world is different maybe earlier you wouldn't have played on center court all the time now you might be always on center court you know and, and you get more questions people want your time you know i remember rory McElroy, i think it was uh, here in singapore telling me that the most difficult thing for him when he won his first couple of majors was learning to say no because everybody wants your time mm. they want to shake your hand they 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 want an autograph uh, they their sponsors want your time can you you know you know have a glass of champagne here journalists want your time everybody wants your time but if you if that time eats into your practice time and that practice Practice time and relax time is what is what made you great. So you got to keep that balance. So it's a process. You got to learn how. To, you're going to learn how to problem solve. You got to. Okay. So now Osaka is the hunted. It's different. So psychologically, it's changed. Now in the dressing room, you're the person that everybody wants to beat. And then you know you. It's, that that it's happened tough. pretty quick though. Huh? And people will raise their game against you naturally. It just happened because they know beating you is a big deal. So it's 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 tough. It's why I, th- I mean, could she win this Open? Of course she could. But I'm saying to become a truly great player takes you a couple of years. I think I pulled out a stat that I think uh, Serena Williams she won her first Slam, and then it took her another 10, 11 Slams before she won another one. Even for her, the greatest player ever, it took a little time. Yeah. Time. Well, normally that's all the time we would have in a game of two halves. But we got a bit of Fergie time today this time around. Extra time. Time added on right at the end of the game. We're going to talk a little bit about football. You can't turn your attention away from Manchester United now, can you? Six games, six wins for new manager Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. Young manager on the up. Yeah, look, to be honest, I used to be a Manchester United fan when I was younger. And then I sort of left the club, so to speak. What? And, and I'm How not, is that I'm possible? not a big Mourinho fan. To be honest, look, I think he's a great manager. I'm not going to say he's not. But I don't think he was a great fit with United. So, in a way, maybe it's good he's gone. It's very interesting, fascinating for me that the same players who did not play so well under him are now, what, six matches without loss? Six matches right? and just beat Tottenham Hotspur 1-0. It's amazing. So it just tells you that, again, it's psychological, you know. It's obviously this guy, they didn't like playing for Moreno. They like playing for this guy. You know, they, they're all a little rejuvenated. How long it lasts, I don't know. But it's good to see. Our colleague Sazali Abdul Aziz was among the 80,000 or so at Wembley Stadium in the early hours of Monday morning. He was watching Oli's men score a superb victory over title-chasing Tottenham Hotspur. Now, Saz, just how good did David De Gea look in the Manchester United goal live? Yes, Sham, it's uh, full-time at Wembley. Uh, final score is uh, Tottenham Hotspur nil, Manchester United 1. The Red Devils run goes on to six, six games across uh, all competitions for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, and, you know, it proved to be uh, one of those games where David De Gea was the, the difference again. The United fans must have been going crazy at Wembley, no? Now, besides the Hayes' performance, what else impressed you about United's showing? Well, 
the, the menu fans who are uh, parked in a corner of the, the stadium, uh, near one of the corner flags, you know, they're, they're still uh, celebrating wildly now. It's been a couple of minutes since full time. Uh, and, you know, I think they have every right to be happy. You know, it's, it's yes, you know, the Gea was probably the man of the match. Uh, but I think this uh, United side uh, is so, so different from the United team we saw before Christmas. Uh, you know, Solskjaer has got them playing uh, with freedom. Uh, you know, they're exciting. And I think the biggest difference is uh, when they they were in front and when uh, Spurs were were really going at them and trying to get, uh, you know, that equaliser and, and, you know, forcing the gear into so many saves, uh, they never panicked. Uh, that's the amazing thing. The, 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 the outfielders never panicked. They held on to the ball. And, uh, yeah, you know, they, they, they have every reason to be pleased. And uh, I can see this uh, run continuing for them. Well, you can't say that Spurs gave the game away to United, obviously not. But the home side weren't exactly completely convincing, were they? Yeah, you know, as, as impressive as United were, uh, Spurs really looked uh, lethargic at times, uh, particularly in the first half where they didn't even manage a, a single shot on target. Uh, but they came out for the second half all guns blazing. Uh, you know, but I think overall you could, you could see the difference in, in freshness between the two teams. Uh, you know, Spurs had... Uh, a, a, a very tough game uh, against Chelsea in the League Cup semi-final, uh, whereas United had a break in Dubai. Um, so you know, I guess uh, the difference uh, showed today. United look like they're back to their best, but they're surely too far behind in sixth spot to challenge for the Premiership title. Now, what impact does this result have on Spurs' hopes of beating Man City and Liverpool to the title? I think, in the grand scheme of things, this result shows that. You know, if any team is going to stop Liverpool from winning the title, it's going to be Manchester City. Uh, Spurs simply don't have uh, the strength and depth uh, in their squad. Um, maybe if they bring a couple of bodies in in the January transfer window, uh, you know, that, that could change. Uh, but they are, they are competing on all four fronts and uh, I, I don't think they just have it in them to, to push Liverpool all the way uh, in, the, in the race for the Premiership title. So uh, it's down uh, to Liverpool or Man City for me. And, and you know, I've said in the, in, the, in the podcast for a few weeks that I believe it's uh, Liverpool season uh, and it, look, it looks increasingly that way. And on that note, here's the final whistle bringing to a close the game of two halves. Thanks, Rohit. It's been fun. If you enjoyed the podcast as much as we did, do subscribe to A Game of Two Halves on Apple's podcast app or on Google Podcasts or even on Spotify. Please get on there and tell us what you think of what we've been doing so far. Give us a rating. You know you like us. That was an SPH podcast. Find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts and streaming on Google Home. Do send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at straightstimes.com and bt.sg.